Right now, there are one billion people in the world waking up who are not sure whether or not they're going to be able to find enough food to fill that cup. One in seven people in the world, about one billion people today, do not know if or where they will find enough food to feed them throughout the day. And that has some consequences. That means that there's children crying who cannot be comforted by giving them food, what they need. And you say, why doesn't the mother just breastfeed them? Well, the mother is so malnourished, she can't. What that comes out to is, by the time this sermon's over, sadly, just under 250 children will die because of starvation. This last week, that hit me. That hit me as I stood in Wegsman's grocery store, standing there asking myself, what does it mean when I pray, give us today our daily bread? Because I was overwhelmed by the options of crackers that I had for which, which ones I should buy my son. I was overwhelmed by the amount of food that was surrounding me, the disgusting amount of food that I throw away, my household throws away. What are we asking when we pray, give us today our daily bread, us who live in a place that isn't worried where we're going to find our next meal? I called up my family and I asked my family if there was ever a day where they were worried about what kind of food or where they would get food or if they'd be able to feed me and my siblings. There was never a day. That's a blessing, and that's a privilege that even people at times in our own country don't experience. As I was thinking about that, standing in Wegmans, it dawned on me that while one billion people are going to bed hungry tonight, another one billion people are going to bed obese. In our country, one out of four Americans are overfed, while one out of seven people in the world are not fed enough. So what are we asking for when we pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread? We're in the fourth week of our sermon series, A Prayer of Passion, where we're looking at the Lord's Prayer and breaking down the different parts or the different petitions and asking the question, what are we really asking for when we say this prayer? What should we be asking for when we say this prayer? What we learned throughout the first three weeks is that the first thing God does in this prayer, he directs our eyes and our hearts upward towards our vertical relationship, a relationship with God. We begin by praying our Father who art in heaven, and he teaches us that the person we pray to is not some far distant or far off God. It is our ideal dad who we speak to. And when we ask him for his kingdom to come, what we're first and foremost asking is that all of his gospel goodness and all of his gospel promises rain down from heaven in the hearts of ourselves and those next to us. We prayed, Lord, your will be done on earth 
just like it already is in heaven. Lord, take what is good, what is in your heart, what is in your mind, what is in your word, and bring it about here in our life. But this week, our sermon is going to shift from the vertical relationship to the horizontal one. And we're going to pray a different prayer, a prayer that God asks, uh, that we ask God to bless our earthly life. And so first, it shouldn't go without saying that how amazing is it that God actually not only gives us this prayer, not only gives us gospel promises and blessings in it, but he prioritizes our lives, taking care of first and foremost what we ultimately need from him, a right relationship with God, but not neglecting even for a second what we need here on this earth, daily bread. But still, what are we asking for when we ask for daily bread. Because what you're going to find in this prayer is that it's not just a prayer for bread. It's not just a prayer for food. And it's not just a prayer for material things. What this prayer does, it takes your heart, it takes your entire disposition towards life, and it refocuses it. We're going to break that down, that idea down even more this morning as we look at a couple different things. We're going to look at our request for daily bread. We're going to look at God's response to our request for daily bread. And ultimately, we're going to look at our reception of the daily bread that God gives us. And we're going to do that by looking at a narrative from the Old Testament, a narrative where we see God giving bread daily to the people of Israel. An Old Testament story that has a lot of new and a lot of relevant application for us as we pray this prayer. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 16 and 17. And so I want to invite you to open up to that right now. And we're going to read it in parts. We're going to read just a few verses at a time and then break it down from there. So we're going to begin with Exodus chapter 16 and read just the first few verses. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we, would, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. This is God's word so far. The Israelites find themselves in the desert of Sin. It's spelled like our English word sin, S-I-N, but it's not the same. Although they definitely committed sin in the desert of Sin. That's where the Israelites find themselves geographically, but let me back up and tell you where they are at historically. 430 years ago, Jacob and his 12 sons came to the land of Egypt. All their families, about 70 in total, were there. Now let's fast forward 430 years. This small family of about 70 has multiplied. God has blessed them. They're now about two and a half million strong. But throughout that history, Egypt turned on them. You know, Egypt enslaved them and forced them to do hard things. And yet God was with them. God had blessed them. And in the last couple months, here's what they had seen. They had seen God's almighty hand reach down from heaven in the form of 10 plagues and inflict wonders 
in the land. They had watched as they celebrated the Passover meal for the first time. They had watched as the angel of the Lord passed over their houses and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians just a month and a half ago. Just a few weeks ago, they had stood with their backs against the wall of the Red Sea and they had watched as God came out of heaven in the form of a pillar of fire and smoke and separated the Egyptian army from then. They had walked through the Red Sea as God held it up on both sides and they celebrated and sang a song of praise to him on the other side as they watched him drown Pharaoh's armies. We didn't read chapter 15, but they got out into a desert, into a place where there was some bitter water, and he gave them fresh, clean water. That had just happened. That's where they're at historically. That's where the Israelite timeline is. And yet, how do they talk to God? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us into this desert to starve. Are you kidding me, Israel? You did not sit around pots of meat. You were being beat as you made bricks. The Lord God did not bring you out here to kill you. In fact, over and over again, he has assured you and showed you that your life is what's valuable to him. Yet they grumble. But you see what Israel's doing, don't you? They're engaged in that good old days kind of thinking. A bit of nostalgia, right? False nostalgia. Looking back on happier times when, when things were, of course, better, but their memories are off because they forgot about their past. They forgot about their past pain. And what happens when you forget about that in the present? Well, your gratitude for God's present blessings lowers. And when your gratitude for God's present blessings go down, your grumbling against God goes up. Because the reality is we are inseparably physical and spiritual people and they both affect one another. So when a physical crisis happens in our life, inevitably what happens is a spiritual crisis. We look at what's going on in our life and we say, man, God must not care. God must really not be as loving as he said he was. God, why aren't you with me? Why don't you care anymore? And sometimes people even go so far as to doubt God, his existence and his power. When a physical crisis leads to a spiritual crisis, you think about it, God has placed you and I in a land flowing with freedom. Here in the United States, we can do most anything we can want. We can worship our God when and where we want. And yet what happens when I'm asked or told I need to do X or I'm held accountable for Y? Well, I say life's just not fair. In other words, God's not fair. God has placed you and I living in a land of abundance, of affluence. And you know what, what happens when there's first world problems? When the Wi-Fi goes out, or my Wi-Fi costs too much, or my kids don't get the grades I think they should, or I'm stuck in traffic. 
God, where are you? Why are you doing this to my family? When we are in the present and we forget about the past with gratitude, grumbling goes up. But the first thing that God is teaching about us in this prayer is this truth. When we make our request to God, when we pray before our God, it should reflect gratitude for the past, for how God has cared for us so much. And what that does, it eliminates grumbling in the present. When we stand in the present with gratitude for all that God has done in the past, it totally wipes out any grumbling that we might have. Can I show you how this works? Here's, uh, here's maybe a little throwback for middle school or high school, whenever you learn this. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? <laughs> Familiar with this? Uh, the theory is that people are motivated to go after the things they need in this kind of ascending order, right? It starts with the physiological. I need to breathe. I need to eat. I need to drink water. I need these things in my life. But when these needs are met, then I'm motivated to go up. I'm motivated to look for safety and security needs. Make sure I have shelter over my head. My family is safe and secure. My job is safe and secure. And once these needs are met, well, then I look forward to the next thing. I'm looking forward to social needs. Are, are my relationships deep? Do I have friends? Do I have family that cares? Am I connecting with them on an intimate level? And then when these are met, then I look forward even more. Then I'm starting to look for esteem needs. Do these people with whom I have a relationship with, do they respect me? Do they acknowledge my accomplishments? And ultimately, the end goal is self-actualization. Am I living to my full potential? Am I living my best life? Am I getting to use all of my gifts and explore ways to use all of my gifts? That's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's quite accurate. That is the way we think. But can I tell you the problem with this? Can I tell you where Maslow's hierarchy of needs is kind of broken? See, what it does is it always makes us look to the next thing. It makes us kind of whiny in the present. Because whether we have this level of needs met or not, there's always one more to look for. There's always the next thing. There's always more. There's always things I want. There's always things I need. There's always the next level. And whenever I get to self-actualization, if I get to self-actualization, well, then what? Then there's just more self. So there's always more. What this hierarchy of needs does it makes us grumble, makes us whiny, makes us needy. Let me show you this. Let me show you God's hierarchy of needs. He flips it upside down. And he actually starts with self-actualization. He starts with you and yourself. Long before you were even born, he thought of you. And he thought about you not living up to your potential, not being the crown of God's creation, which he created you to be. And so he sent Christ to redeem you and to make you who you were made to be in the image of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, 
through the glory and the goodness wrapped up in Jesus, God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through him you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world. Look, you don't need to strive for self-actualization because you have been realized and actualized in the eyes of your God. In Christ Jesus, you are his. He sent Christ for you to be everything that you could ever want to be. And if that weren't enough, he gives you esteem. But not self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. For if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has gone. The old has come, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against him. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Do you want more confidence than that? You are the righteousness of God. The search for self-esteem ends in Christ where you have all the esteem, all the respect of the God of the universe who made you to be his own. And if that weren't enough, he called you into a level of belonging that this world does not know. For when the time has fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, And you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. He's brought you into an intimate relationship with him. And he promises safety and security for your your life. He says, do not be afraid for the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. He will never leave you or forsake you. What kind of life insurance do you need besides that? And on top of that, he says, all those physiological needs, got them. Do not worry about what you eat or what you drink. I have covered that as well. You see, the difference of what God's hierarchy of needs does versus Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it points us to the past. It points us to the past with gratitude for God and what he has done. There is no looking for what I need. There is no looking for what's out there and what I'm not and what I don't have. Because in Christ, you have everything. It allows you to not complain and grumble, but only celebrate with gratitude and thanksgiving everything that you have in Jesus. And that's where we make our requests to God. When we make requests to God with gratitude for everything he did in the past, it eliminates grumbling. And our God is pleased to hear our request and respond. And that's what he does in this next section perhaps the most remarkable thing about this sermon text as we look at this story about Israel. Let's begin reading at verse 3. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, 
In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire assembly of Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. When Aaron was speaking with the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost was on the ground, appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. But Moses said to him, it is the bread of the Lord has given you to eat. I don't know about you, but my heart thrills and I start to get the chills when I think about how our Lord responds to Israel. Not once does he get angry. Not once does he get mad. Not once does he punish them for their grumbling and complaining. But where they would die without him, where they were in desperate need for him, he came and he responded by unconditionally forgiving their sin in the desert of Sin and uniquely giving them everything that they needed. And that is how our God responds to us today. He responds to us wherever we're at, even in the wilderness of our own sins, and he responds by always forgiving and always giving. He forgives us because he gave you the true bread from heaven. John chapter 6. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. The greatest example of God's grace is that he unconditionally forgives. And even when we don't deserve it, even when we deserve his death, even when we're caught in our wilderness of sin, he calls us his by forgiving us and giving us today, each day, our daily bread. What is daily bread? Well, it's simply this. It's everything and anything you need for your unique life. I stress that word, your unique life, because just think about what the Israelites were going through. Think about their their season, their situation in life. God provided a very unique solution. Quail falling from the sky, bread forming where there used to be dew. He cared for them in a special and unique way. Does he care for us that way still? No, there's no bread in my backyard in the morning. There's no quail falling in the evening But God cares for us. He cares for each of us differently, giving each of us our daily bread. The daily bread that God gives to a 20-something-year-old who's single is different than the daily bread that he gives to a 30, 40-year-old who has multiple children. But God gives daily bread 
uniquely to everybody. The daily bread that God gives to a grade schooler is different than the daily bread that God gives to someone about to enter the stage in life called retirement. But just step back and think about your life for a moment. Think about the different seasons of life that you have gone through and think about how God has provided uniquely, maybe not everything you always wanted, but that's not daily bread. God has always provided everything you need in whatever season, in whatever station of life you're in. That's how God responds. That's always how our God responds. He responds by always forgiving unconditionally and always giving uniquely what you need for life. Here's the greatest part. God gives that daily. But the Israelites didn't get that. Let's finish out our reading. Exodus chapter 16 through the end. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it to morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Then the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Kind of makes you want to scream like Moses, doesn't it? It's a little frustrating. Israel, look, you have been led out of Egypt by the hand of God. You are led through the desert by the hand of God. You are given water drink. You are given food and quail. And when it comes that you don't have water again, what is your solution? Well, it's illogical. They say, we're going to go kill the only person who has provided for us so far. The only person who has been good to us and talked to God for us. We're going to kill Moses. We're going to stone him. Moses calls it what it is. He says, you're quarreling with me, which isn't just belly aching anymore. It is bringing litigation against. It's accusing Moses. It's being angry at Moses. He said, it's not just getting angry at me. It's putting the Lord 
to the test. What does that mean to put the Lord to the test? It means demanding proof from God of God's goodness. It's saying, God, show me the money. Prove it to me that you care for me. As one author put it, it's to test the Lord is to try to turn faith into sight. It's, it's to say, God, why do you not care for me? Show me that you care for me. All because you had a bad day at work. One bad day. And you forget that God has literally provided for your entire life through this job for the past 5, 10, or 15 years. That's testing God. To test God is to look at God and go, God, why don't you care for me? Why don't you show me love in this life? Because one person said a mean thing to you and you forget that God has placed you in a family, in a faith family and with friends through whom he has given you all the care and all the love that God can muster. That's testing God. It's demanding God. It's trying to force God to show you God and his goodness. It's what the devil does. Did God really say? God, throw yourself and we'll see if he catches you. But faith doesn't make demands from God. No, faith receives gifts from our Father. And that's what our reception is all about. Our reception of God's good gifts is all about receiving what he gives with thanks, not tests, not demands, not asking for more. And what you're going to find when you receive from God what he gives with thanks, that he gives you more gifts still. He gives you a great gift, a great mystery that this world doesn't understand. It's called contentment. It's contentment and the peace of mind knowing that your life and mine will never, could never fall to pieces because it's in the hand of God. Contentment is getting freedom from neediness, needing and wanting material things because everything you need and want is in Christ. Contentment is courage in your value, courage to stand in your worth, not looking to other people to define who you are, what you are, but stand in the fact that you are in Christ. And, and what you need for life, the contentment for life, is not just things. It's joyfulness in trials because God gives us daily bread, yes, even things like comfort. It's boldness in the place of fearfulness because, yes, God even gives for daily bread things like strength, strings like confidence. Daily bread, in short, is this. It is having Christ and knowing Christ and yet seeking Christ all the more for all the ways that he provides in your life. It seems rather obvious, but one thing we forgot about daily bread is that it's daily. It comes every day. What God is teaching us in this prayer is to focus on today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough problems of his own, but he says, give us today our daily bread, what we need for today. Stop being so minded about planning, scheming, speculating, being concerned about the future because daily bread, it comes daily. 
What this prayer does is take our entire heart, focuses on this world word called today, and see here whether you're rich or poor, young or old, type A or type B, a planner or laid back, God gives you what you need. In God, he is flooding all of his grace, all of the daily bread, all of the bread of life for eternal life and this life is being given to you. That's where our prayer focuses our heart. Painting is a picture done by the Renaissance master, Raphael. And it's a fresco painting that is in the Vatican. And it's a picture aptly called Moses Striking the Rock. It's a great picture of this Bible story. I think there's some really neat aspects to it. But I don't mean this in a disrespectful way to Raphael, but I think I could have painted a better picture. You want to know why? I refuse to believe that when Moses hit that rock, it came out in a trickle. Because there's two and a half million people dying of thirst. And people would have died of thirst if they had to wait to stand in line to fill their canteens in this trickle. I think a better painting was done by a modern artist named Chris Smitten. When Moses hit this rock, God flooded water out of it. God poured out of it because that's the way our God gives. Our God lavishly pours into our life everything that we need. And guess what? Even things we don't need. God pours into every nook and cranny of our lives his blessings, his goodness, what he calls daily bread. Things that we didn't even know, things that we didn't even expect were to come from him because that's just how our God gives. Our God gives daily bread and it starts by him giving the bread of life. That's what this rock stood for. That's what that manna stood for. It stood for Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God said this, the Israelites all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. And in the same way that rock pointed Israel ahead to Christ and foreshadowed him, daily bread and the rocks that pour out God's blessings to us in our life point us back to him. And so there is no need to stand where Israel stood and ask the question, is God with us or is he not? You don't need a miracle of a rock pouring out water to see that everything, the clothes on your back, the food on your table, the friends, the family that you have, is daily bread given from the hand of God. Amen. Amen.